As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's holy word, let us bow for a word of prayer. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to your church as we gather here today. And in our hearing, help us to obey. For we make our prayer in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson today comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15. I have abbreviated it a little bit from what is printed in your bulletin, but this is the account of the time when David's son Absalom uh, led a coup in Jerusalem and kicked David off the throne and out of the city. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were there with him at Jerusalem, Get up, let us flee, or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake us and bring disaster down upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. The king's officials said to the king, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king decides. The king left, followed by all the people, and they stopped at the last house. All his officials passed by him. The whole country wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king crossed the Wadi Kidron, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, with his head covered and walking barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. And the gospel lesson from the lectionary this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, the account of the triumphant entry. By the way, there's been some confusion today about whether Jesus rode a colt or a donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, The Greek word for colt can actually mean the young of a horse or a donkey, so it's ambiguous. But it's likely it was a donkey because there were so many more donkeys in ancient Palestine than horses. So that's where we get the donkey from, even though the text says colt. I invite you now to listen once again for the word of the Lord. Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. 
Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God never wanted the people to have a king. It should have sufficed for God to be their ruler because it was God who had called them and redeemed them. But in the days of the judges, the people reject God as their monarch. Seeing how the other nations crowned and submitted to human kings, the Israelites demand that God give them a king too. God issues an extensive warning to Israel that their kings would be corrupt, just like the kings of all the other nations, and would subjugate the people in all sorts of ways. Still, the people are unrelenting in their demand. So God gives them a king, Saul, to rule over them. And thus begins the tragic history of kingship in Israel. Though Saul would quickly crash and burn, King David follows him onto the throne with much prominence and adulation. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And he's anointed king over Israel despite being the youngest of eight brothers. His heroic victory over the giant Philistine Goliath only adds to his aura. And David assumes the crown in Israel when King Saul falls on his own sword in battle. Under King David, Israel would become the strongest it would ever be as a nation, repeatedly defeating rivals and establishing its capital in Jerusalem, which would come to be known as the city of David. Best of all, God establishes an everlasting covenant with David, providing assurance that a Davidic king, someone from David's line, would reign in Jerusalem forevermore. But as so often happens when human beings are given too much power and adoration, King David stumbles. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, which was probably not consensual enough to really be called an affair. And to cover it up, he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. The prophet Nathan brings a curse from God upon David's family and declares, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Isn't it remarkable how the popularity of our rulers, of our leaders, waxes and wanes? It seems as if we expect so much of those in power that we applaud them when we think they can accomplish all that we demand of them. But when they begin to let us down, when the cracks in their armor begin to show, 
we turn on them with vicious anger. How badly we long to assign power to someone else, assign responsibility to someone else. But then when they do not do what we want them to do, we respond ruthlessly. Such is the relationship between human beings and our kings, it seems. And so it is for King David, whose approval ratings plummet as his own son Absalom sparks an opposition movement and co-ops the loyalty of Jerusalem. Despite the economic growth and military victories David has overseen, Absalom manages, as the text says, to turn the hearts of Jerusalem against David as the curse of David's conduct begins to take root. Sensing his moment, Absalom leads a coup to depose David from the throne in Jerusalem. And in our Old Testament text today, David is forced to flee his own city. He departs Jerusalem, goes through the outlying villages and escapes up the Mount of Olives, barefoot, covering his head and weeping, as all those accompanying him do also. As much glory as there is when a king is welcomed with adoration, there is a corresponding amount of disgrace when a king is rejected with loathing. Kings grow accustomed to the worship and allegiance of their people, and when that worship ceases, humiliation takes its place, and a humiliated leader is as dangerous a human being as there is. A threatened king is a ruthless king. And a leader clinging to power becomes obsessed with displays of dominance. Such is the nature of the human king. David would go on to recapture Jerusalem later in the story, but not without much more gory violence and betrayal. The power struggle birthed within the house of David would continue for centuries, even as the might of the nation of Israel would unravel under David's sons and descendants. The kingdom would divide into two nations, north and south, and each nation would eventually be conquered by the sword. Under the captivity of foreign kings, the people of Israel would come to long for and expect a Messiah, a deliverer, someone sent from God to restore the fortune of their nation to what it had been in the days of King David. They knew of only one way to pursue such restoration. It was the way of their own history and the way of the history of the other nations. The way of the warrior, the way of violence, the way of vengeance. Such is the way of human power, it seems. Just as David had conquered the Philistines and captured Jerusalem, so also the coming son of David would surely conquer whatever empire of the day was clinging to its tenuous power. Messianic expectations took a range of forms, and many people who claimed to be the Messiah came and went, but still the empire reigned. Until, until we arrive at Jesus. All throughout his ministry, Messianic rumors had swirled around Jesus. They brought him some fanfare and a following as some placed their hopes in him. They also made him some enemies and 
kept him on the move as many naysayers plotted against him. And through it all, Jesus seems to reinforce the ambiguity surrounding his identity, never denying nor explicitly stating that he is the Messiah until the triumphant entry. In our New Testament text today, Jesus finally takes the gloves off and breaks his silence, stepping boldly into the messianic role of the coming Davidic king. As he approaches the city of Jerusalem, Jesus stops on the Mount of Olives, sends two disciples ahead of him to acquire a donkey for him to ride, and then embarks on his processional into the city. The image of King David fleeing Jerusalem is not far from Luke's conscience as he recalls this occasion. Jesus retraces David's steps in reverse down the Mount of Olives through the outlying villages and towards the city. And in doing so, it's as if Jesus reverses David's disgrace. Jesus is not barefoot as David had been, but rides on a donkey. Jesus proceeds not with head bowed and covered as though trying to hide as David had, but with head held high. Jesus does not weep with dismay as David had, but arrives to the people's joyful shouts of acclamation and praise to God. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem not rejected as David had been, but welcomed. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Luke points out lots of ways that Jesus embraces the role of king. While the other gospels say that Jesus sat on the donkey, Luke says that Jesus is placed on the donkey, the passive tense implying a sort of enthronement by the people themselves. This is a donkey that had never been ridden, Luke tells us, recalling that in the Old Testament... An unbroken beast of burden was a sacred animal, fit for a king. And as Jesus proceeds, cloaks are placed before him, a ritual practiced for a royal procession. Though Jesus has sometimes evaded or blurred his messianic calling until the time was right, no longer will he ask those who sing his praises to keep silent. No longer will he slip away unnoticed from an angry mob. No, his hour has now come, and the task that lies before him rises to meet him. When his detractors demand that he silence the praises of the crowd, Jesus says, I tell you, if, they, if these keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he receives the height of kingly adoration. By reversing the steps by which King David fled the city, Jesus returns as the Davidic king to the city of David to claim the throne that is rightfully his. This Palm Sunday procession marks the return of the king. But of course, though he claims the throne of David in every metaphoric way he can, Jesus is not about to fall prey to the perils of human kingship that had claimed all those kings who came before him. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem not with a war horse, but a donkey. Not with an army, but with fishermen for disciples. 
And the people who praise him at first would quickly discover that he was not going to be the kind of king they want him to be. He would not take up the sword, but would take up the cross. He would not take life, but would lay down his own life. Jesus is an altogether different kind of king. He is the divine king, a king that God had always intended to be for the people. You see, God had never wanted the people to have a king. It should have sufficed for God to be their ruler, for it was God who had called and redeemed the people. But just as in the days of the judges, the people rejected God as their monarch, so also in the day of Christ, the people would reject God in Christ as their king. History repeats itself. And does not history repeat itself today? Do we not, as the human race, reject the lordship of our God in favor of that which idealizes human strength and power? Surely we continue to look for kings to save us from ourselves, to advance our own interests, whatever their expense may be, on others. Surely we continue to trust more in the sword than in the cross, convinced as we are that might makes right. Surely we continue to adore the powerful more than the teachers or prophets or poets who summon us to a higher kind of power. Human kings are not all they're cracked up to be. And so in the holy week ahead, Jesus is going to demonstrate what it really means to be a king who can save but he's going to save us in a way that we don't expect with a kind of power that we do not expect and from a people we do not expect from ourselves. So how will we respond to our king? Will we turn on him like the people in Jerusalem and depose him for not being the kind of king we want him to be? Or will we listen? Will we trust? Will we follow? Will we receive him? The psalmist warns, do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help. Happy are those whose hope is in the Lord their God. Jesus' triumphant entry poses the question to each of us, In whom will we place our hope? Who do we really want to be king? Who is enthroned in our lives? Amen.